Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio Philippians chapter 3 verses 12 through 21. We will call this section of scripture, Keeping On, Pressing On. That's the theme. The context is this, in the first 11 verses of Philippians 3, Paul is saying, avoid legalism, the dogs, the workers of the circumcision, so that you may know Christ. In other words, you want to know Christ, get rid of, the lo- uh, get rid of legalism. So we start in Philippians 3, verses 12, 13, and 14. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by G- Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When Paul says not that, what is he referring to? He's referring to the previous verse, verse 11, where he says that he may attain the resurrection of the dead. He says, not, I'm, not, I'm not perfect yet, but I, I, I am conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then he says, but I, but I haven't attained it yet. So he's trying to be humble here. He's not saying, look, I'm already perfect. I still got to get there. He says, not that I've already obtained it. The it refers to the resurrection of the dead that he mentioned in verse 11. He says, when he says I've not become perfect, that means that word perfect can mean mature or absolutely at the end of the goal where there's no more progress to be made. Here, he's saying, not that I've already become perfect. Obviously, Paul's already mature, so the word perfect there means perfect in the sense of absolute perfection. He says, I press on. Paul is making an allusion to runners in a race, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown put it, with hand and foot like a runner in a race and the body bent forward. So he's running hard. So they may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. What is that? Probably the resurrection of the dead. That's the ultimate end of our sanctification process. We become glorified and resurrected with a glorified body. And that's what Paul's heading for. He kept that goal in mind. Now, if you say that it's not resurrection of the dead, but he's trying to become perfect in the sense of mature, that doesn't make sense because he's already mature. So it would have to be he's reaching for perfection, absolute perfection, which in in this particular context is a glorified resurrected body. And notice that when he says, I may lay hold of that, the that is the resurrection of the dead, he was also laid hold of that by Christ Jesus. So he holds on to Jesus, and Jesus holds on to him. Why? So that we can reach the final goal, which is our glorified body, our sinlessly perfect state. Now, Paul says in order to do this, he says, I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't laid hold of that resurrected body yet, that glorified state yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. What lies behind in Paul's life? Well, the sins of his past life probably. That would include persecuting Christians to the death. I'm sure he would want to forget that. He, he could have been referring to the earthly and worldly things he's left behind. In the previous section of Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul talked about he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin, and so forth. He had all of these privileges as a big-shot Jewish rabbi. He left that behind. Or it could just be an earthly and worldly things that anybody would want, money, prestige, that kind of security. Paul didn't have any of that. He didn't care. He forgot all that. He's looking forward to what lies ahead. And what lies ahead is not necessarily just in this life. He's talking about the next life. He was heavenly minded as he did all of his earthly good. He says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal. Again, he's using runner 
analogies, race metaphors. The KGV has a mark. Press on for the goal. It refers to the white line the runners in the Olympics ran to. He presses on for that, that white line. Adam Clark says this, From the beginning of the 11th to the end of the 17th verse, there is one continued allusion to the contest at the Olympic Games, exercises with which, and their laws, the Philippians were well acquainted. The Greek Olympics started somewhere in the 8th century B.C., I think it's 756, my memory is fuzzy, but it was somewhere around there, and it was such a unique event, such a, it was a worldwide event as far as the ancient world was concerned, at least as far as the Greek world was concerned. The Philippians, of course, are right north of Greece in Macedon. Everybody knew about the Olympics. So Paul is using a common metaphor. When he says in verse 13, he's reaching forward. That's the New American Standard Bible's translation. Paul is reaching forward to what lies ahead, to that goal, to the ultimate glorified state. Reaching forward. Well, that's kind of a weak translation in my opinion. The NIV and the English Standard Version have straining straining forward which sounds like somebody that's running, straining. I remember in the ninth grade when we had to run a 440 and a six 600-yard run, and I thought I would die before I got to that finish line because I was not in shape. And I remember thinking how awful this is and how great it felt when you finally got there and it was over. Well, I'm sure that that analogy works pretty good with the Christian life. We've got to go through things like coronavirus pandemics. But then when it's all over, boy, Ain't that going to be wonderful? Here's what the NIV Study Bible has to say about this. Quote, life in Christ involves a, involves a tension between two equal but contrasting truths. By faith, believers have already attained God's full acceptance, but in this life, no one yet lives out the full measure of Christ's goodness and love. So Paul urges us to live up to what we have already attained. We are to be fully confident in our salvation, yet at the same time we are to avoid the pride and complacence that could inhibit our continued growth in grace. And that, of course, is the perennial problem of how do you urge Christians onward? Because if you urge them too much, they'll start getting condemned and thinking, well, look what I've already done. Like Peter said, hey, Jesus, we've already given up everything to follow you. So what are you talking about? What do you mean a rich man can't enter into the kingdom of heaven? We've already given up everything to follow you, so we're not doing enough? So that's a typical type of attitude that you might encounter when you encourage people to go forward. So you need to encourage them, thank you for what you've already done, but hey, let's let's keep going. Let's keep let's keep moving. The prize that Paul talks about in verse 14, of course, this is again a metaphor. The the prize in the Olympics was a laurel wreath. So Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Well, what's the prize, the reward? of our spiritual race, the upward call. That's the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. That means we get called upward to heaven. I always used to always wonder about that. The translation is a little bit confusing to me. The upward call of God, what does that mean, calling us upward? Well, it means calling you to heaven because the, the whole context here is talking about your glorified body at the end of the race. Let's look at some other scriptures, two by Paul and one from James, that talk about this prize that we get when we run the Christian life, the prize at the end, i.e. heaven. James 1 verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. See, this is going to be a reward for all this mess that we have to go through down here. 1 Corinthians 9 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now that you is plural. 
So Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9.24, run so that you all may win. So we all Christians can win, but in a human, the analogy breaks down a little bit because in a, in a human race, only one, only one receives the prize that Paul says because he's, ex- he's got to extend himself beyond the efforts of everybody else in that race. He's got to shine. He's got to be superior in his, in his athletic efforts. Well, if every one of you will run the Christian life with that same attitude, all of you can win. All of you can get the prize, not just one. Second Timothy 4.8, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Of course, a crown is, a, is like a laurel wreath. It's the reward that they put on your head. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So, folks, we ought to always remember about the good stuff that's coming. It's, it's easy to get involved in the earthly things of this life and forget about we always have an upward heavenly call. That's what, that's what the goal is. We, the only reason you keep running in a race is because you know the goal's going to get there and you can rest. <laughs> you can rest in the shade of the trees, if you will. That's why you keep running and putting up with the pain of that exertion that you have to do to, to race. Hebrews 3.1 talks about a heavenly calling. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, the upward call, a heavenly calling. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, a calling that calls us to heaven, or a calling that comes from heaven. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. All right, so we go now to Philippians 3, verses 15 and 16. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Now, this is the other part of the equation. We just mentioned it was hard to encourage people. It's difficult to encourage people to improve in their Christian life without condemning them to think that they have failed in what they've already done. Well, Paul recognizes that. In verse 16, he says, keep living by the same standard which we've obtained. In other words, don't forget what you've already done. I, I agree. You have attained to a certain standard of maturity in Christ, and that's good. Keep it up. When he says in verse 15, let us therefore as many as are perfect. Now, the sense of the word perfect here is different. It's not 100% perfect with no more room for progress, but it means mature here as opposed to being a baby. And now he's talking about maturity. He's not talking about Christian perfection because there is nobody who is completely perfect yet. So when he says, let us therefore as many as are perfect, that means as many of us who are mature. Mature would have been a better translation, I think. Have this attitude. What kind of attitude? The attitude that you've got to keep striving forward, press, straining forward to reach the mark of the heavenly call of Jesus, our glorified, resurrected, perfected state. And he says, if you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. Well, I would submit to you that all of us have a different attitude most of the time because we don't, we're not heavenly minded. We just aren't, at least not most people I know. So God will reveal that to us if we don't have that attitude. So we need to pray that God will reveal that attitude to us that we should be heavenly minded. Now, when Paul says in verse 16, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have obtained, the NIV says only let us live up to what we have already obtained. That makes it sound like we live up to what we have already attained to, what we have gotten to. It puts the emphasis on the work of the Christian. But attain could also mean let's live up to which we have already gotten from Christ in the sense of what we have obtained from Christ rather than attained from Christ. Well, I I think it's clear that obviously anything we've obtained in Christ is what Christ has done for us because apart from us, Jesus said, you, apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. 
So the more we learn to let Jesus live out his life in us, that's the more we attain to Jesus' standard. So Paul, in effect here, says, don't backslide from where you have already arrived in your growth. Maintain what you have and try to keep going forward to get to the ultimate prize. We go to verses 17, 18, and 19 in Philippians 3. Paul continues, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, as humble as Paul was, and we know he was a humble man, he was never ashamed to use his life as an example. He says in verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example. Well, how was he humble? Well, remember in the first part of chapter 3, after mentioning all of his benefits that he, all of, all of the benefits that he had as a Jewish person, a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin and so forth, he says, I counted all his rubbish, dung, feces. That's pretty humble. He didn't care about all that stuff anymore. So he was humble, but he wasn't humble about his walk in the Lord because he says, I walk, I follow Jesus. I want you to follow my example. Brethren, join in following my example. Here's some other scriptures where he says the same thing. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Imitate me as, also, as I also imitate Christ. Now, it's not clear in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 what he's referring to because it could refer to the previous chapter where Paul talks about not making one's brother stumble. And then Paul says, imitate me because I don't make people stumble. Or he could be talking about what's coming next in chapter 11. He wants the brothers to agree with him in the matter of women's head coverings. Whichever it is, the point is, is people were to imitate Paul. And there's nothing wrong with finding a godly Christian person. You don't turn them into a guru. You don't worship them as a god, but you you look at their walk in Christ and you say, man, they're not walking according to the world, the flesh, and the devil. I want to, I want to imitate them like that. Nothing wrong with that at all. Second Thessalonians 3.9, it is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. Well, how were the Thessalonians to imitate Paul? Because Paul in the previous verses had said he was working with his own hands so as not to give a negative example to lazy bones in the Thessalonican church who didn't want to work. So Paul says, imitate me. We can think about Peter, too. He said, uh, "Be." Uh, he was talking about uh, being an example to the flock, talking to elders, be examples to the flock, imitate. That's the way you get people to do things, folks. You get them to imitate you. You don't sit there and tell them, do this, do that, and if you don't, I'm going to punish them. I'm going to beat you up the side of the head. You know, that's not the way you do it. You get people to voluntarily that's leadership, when you get people to want to follow you because they admire your your life. Now, Paul says, I've told you all this for many walkers. I've often told you that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. When did Paul tell them that? Well, he could have been on the second missionary journey when he started the church. could have been in previous letters when he that he may have written to the Philippians. We don't know, but Paul apparently has already warned them. And, of course, he's probably warning them about these dogs he mentioned in Philippians 3, 2, watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Those were the legalists who were saying they had to circum you had to get circumcised in order to get saved. That's probably the Judaizers. That's probably who Paul was talking about here. I've told you about these people. I've told you about these dogs. They're enemies of the cross. How can they be enemies of the cross of Christ? Well, the cross of Christ says the work that was done for your salvation was done on that cross when Jesus suffered. The legalists were saying the work 
that's done for salvation is by cutting the foreskin off of of a male. By substituting another work for the work of Jesus, then you become the enemy of what Jesus did on that cross. You become an enemy of Jesus. You become an enemy of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You become an enemy of Jesus who shed his blood for the salvation of believers in this world. Serious business. And he says the end of these people in verse 19 is destruction. Well, that could be temporal destruction or it could be eternal destruction. I don't know that Paul distinguishes the two. They keep on what they're doing. They're going to be eternally destroyed in addition to being temporally destroyed. Their God is their appetite. Now, if if these are legalizers Paul is talking about, why would their God be their appetite? Their stomach, as the KGV has it. Why would they worship their stomach? I like that. Why would they do that? Well, it could be because legalists love to talk about food and drink. For example, Hebrews 9.10. Again, the author of the book of Hebrews is ranting about legalists. Since they relate only to food and drink, these regulations that they're talking about, since they relate only to food and drink in various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. All right, so the Jewish laws were relating to food and drink, and legalists are constantly concerned about, did you eat shrimp? Did you eat pork? Did you eat snakes? Did you eat bats? That might be a good thing to stay away from in this time of coronavirus. But the, the whole point is, is these people are constantly talking about their appetite, what they're eating. That could be. Or it could be that they're gluttons. And most of the time we take it as gluttons. And that might cut against the idea of the people that Paul is talking about being legalists because you don't think of gluttons as legalists. You think of them as libertines, which is the opposite of legalism. However, I might point out that most people, when they say don't do this and don't do that, and they get under the law, the law arouses the very thing that the law is supposed to prohibit. Like you get on a diet, don't eat that, don't eat that. Ooh, boy, that food starts to look good. So it could be these legalists were porking it up hypocritically while they were telling everybody else what they couldn't eat. Not really sure about that, but whose glory is their shame? Nice poetic way of turning things around. Glory is the public manifestation of one's excellent characteristics. Shame is the public manifestation of one's bad characteristics. And so these legalists were publicly manifesting to everybody that they were shameful. They were, people should turn their heads and shake their heads. No, we don't want to look at these these people. These people are awful. They set their minds on earthly things. Earthly things like, what do I eat? What do I don't eat? It's really ironic here that Paul's enemies are pampered. You know, they... They have earthly things. Paul had given up every earthly things. He didn't have any money. He didn't have any fame. He didn't have any prestige. He gave that all up. But the legalists, they were porking it up with their, filling their stomach up with dainties, setting their minds on earthly things. Quite a contrast. But what's the end result of this? Well, the end result of the evil dogs, the workers of the circumcision, is they were to be destroyed. Their end is destruction. But what's the end of Paul? Well, in verse 21, I'll jump ahead a little bit. This is, his, this is what happens with him. Jesus will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The resurrection of the body. That's what's going to happen with Paul. He, he deprives his body of all that fancy food now, but he's going to end up with a brand new body, whereas the gluttons who are stuffing their stomachs now and enjoying things now, they're going to end up with total destruction. 
Now, Paul says in verse 18 that he tells the Philippians weeping about these dogs, these enemies of the cross of Christ, these workers of the circumcision. He tells them weeping. When I came back from China, I noticed that I started reading English articles again, and people were starting to use this word schadenfreude. And I said, why is everybody talking about schadenfreude? What does that mean? Well, I looked it up. It just means gloating when your enemy goes down. Gloat, gloat, gloat. Paul doesn't do that. He says, I tell you, even weeping, he's sad that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And I'll tell you what, as we enter into the post-Christian era in America where there are so many people publicly in our culture and our political world and everywhere openly mocking the cause of Christ, openly mocking Jesus, I mean, now you can't even say, I was born in 1951 A.D. Oh, no, it's got to be B.C.E. now. Or excuse me, C.E. now, not A.D., because I know Domini is the Lord, and we're not going to talk about Christ now anymore. And so as the intellectuals and the media and the political people and everybody totally turn their back on Christ, their end is destruction, but I ain't going to be happy about it. Ain't nothing happy about people dying and going to hell. Nothing happy about it all. It's necessary because of our stupid rebellion. But there's nothing to jump up and down and say, ha, 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 you're going to hell. That's why I object. I believe in capital punishment, but I object to people standing out there when the lights dim and the, and the power goes on to, to execute the criminal and everybody starts screaming and yelling, yay, fry him, you know. That's schadenfreude. And that's not good. We should be sad that that person broke the law the human, the moral, the human law as well as God's law, and kill somebody and had to go to die and go to hell for it unless he repented. That's nothing to be happy about. It's necessary, but it's not nothing to be happy about. We go now to verses 20 and 21, and we'll finish up this audio. We'll finish up chapter three. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, right there, you can tell what Paul's talking about: the goal of the heavenly calling, the upward call of Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. See, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about after this life and in in the next life. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This is a great verse. I remember it well because I got involved in controversy with hyper-preterists who don't believe in the final resurrection of the dead. They believe in a spiritual resurrection of some sort that happened at AD 70. And I just love this verse because it just flat knocks hyper-preterism right in the teeth. God will, uh, Jesus will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. With Jesus' glorified body, God is going to transform our body in the same way. How are you going to get around that? That's why the resurrection of the dead is in all those, in the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed. If you don't like creeds, I'm sorry, it's also in the Bible. Resurrection of the dead is extremely important. For our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. It's impossible to get our full rights and happiness here on earth. Jesus didn't. Why should we expect it? This world is a veil of tears, and it's screwed up with sin. It's going to be redeemed, and that's when we're going to get our full rights and happiness. Now, of course, Paul says in heaven, and I think I read an article one time, and I think it was a good article talking about our our tendency is to think of heaven as someplace in the by and by, but we got to remember this earth is going to be redeemed, and so in the final state, we're going to have a new earth to live on. It's going to be ours, and it's not going to be screwed up with sin. So heaven is going to include this earth is what, is what I'm saying. 
Now, when Paul says he, that Jesus will transform the body of our humble state, that's through a bodily resurrection. As Jameson, Fox, and Brown say, quote, as Christ's glorified body was essentially identical with his body of humiliation. Now, what that means is, is that when you looked at Jesus before he died and you looked at Jesus after he died, it was still Jesus. You could still recognize him as Jesus. I realize that some people didn't, like Mary Magdalene was full of grief and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know, they had trouble recognizing that that's a, a slight theological problem. You have to explain that. But generally, oh, and also Thomas, he, he had trouble believing it too. It was hard for them to believe that Jesus would be resurrected from the dead. But the rest of them, they, they, they recognized Jesus. They knew who he was. So as Christ's glorified body was essentially identical with his body of humiliation, so our resurrection bodies as believers, since they shall be like his, conform to the body of his glory, Paul puts it, they shall be like his, shall be identically, essentially, shall be identical, essentially, with our present bodies. In other words, if you're Sam Spade and on earth and I see you in heaven, I'm going to say, hey, Sam, I'm going to recognize you if I knew you before here on earth. We're going to recognize ourselves. This is much different than other religions who say we disappear into the nirvana, into the great all soul and all that stuff where individual essences are destroyed that's straight from the pit of hell folks you're going to be who you are now notice in verse 21 that our body is transformed into conformity with the body of his glory with jesus's body that means jesus has got a body in heaven here's a quote from john gill it is now in heaven jesus's body and of which his transfiguration on the mount was an emblem and pledge for glory power incorruption and immortality the bodies of the saints and the resurrection shall be like to christ though not equal to it, and shall shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. That's standard theology 101, that Jesus has a resurrected body now. He still has it. I don't know why. The first time I read that, it just kind of struck me. I hadn't thought about that before, that Jesus has a body even in heaven. Now, how are we going to see him, all these billions of people that believe in him? I don't know if we're going to have to take appointments or not. I don't know how that's going to work. I guess we have, since we have eternity, there's a lot of time up there. If we have to wait a bit, to, to, if we're standing in line, one billion people in front of us, it's not going to be any big deal because we're going to have plenty of time. I don't know. But he does have a body. This resurrection, this transformation of our body to be like his body, is done by the exertion of his power. Of course, to, to resurrect anybody, he takes a lot of power. We see this in the classic chapter on resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 42 through 57, which I can't read of all of that, but I'll read 42 and 43. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, old, beaten down, decrepit, maybe with a gunshot wound, whatever, in dishonor. But it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Notice that it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So power and glory kind of go together. It takes power to get to glory. To get a glorified body, it takes a lot of power, and God's got that power. So the terms power and glory go together in 1 Corinthians 15:43. It is raised in glory. It is raised in power. And the terms power and glory go together here in Philippians 3:21. Conformity. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has. What power is that? The power that he has even to subject all things to himself. What does it mean to subject all things to himself? Sin, Satan, the world, death, anything which would conspire to kill a physical body and keep it in the grave. Jesus has the power to subject all that under his foot. 
So when the physical body is raised, sin, Satan, the world, and death are conquered. No more to harass us and to make our human existence miserable. Friends, that's something to look forward to, to press forward, to press forward, to get to, to attain to, to strain for. And when I say strain, I don't mean in your own flesh. I mean through the power of Christ working in you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians 4, we see that the first nine verses contain miscellaneous exhortations to the brethren in Philippi. And starting with verse 10 in chapter 4, Paul talks about God's provision, talking about money. We'll do the first nine verses in the next audio, talking about where Paul exhorts the Philippians, and one of the exhortations is to rejoice. Eight times in the book of Philippians, Paul talks about rejoicing, even though he's in jail. So we'll talk about that next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.